All right, if you guys want to go ahead and have a seat. Man, I love it. This is like the first church I've ever been a part of where you have to cut people off from introducing themselves to one another. That is very healthy. Uh, If you have a Bible with you this morning, please turn to the Gospel according to Mark. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, you can feel free to borrow one of the Bibles in these black chairback pockets in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep that Bible. We want everyone to have it. Um, So we're going to the Gospel according to Mark. It's the second book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, chapter 11, is where we're going to begin in just a moment. This week, this past week, we observed in different ways two pretty significant anniversaries. Um, One of the 10th anniversary of Ivan when it came through in 2004, and then the 13th anniversary of the September 11th uh, terrorist attacks in New York City. And you probably had conversations this week with neighbors or at work or even just in your house talking about where were you. So when, when Ivan came through, where did you weather the storm? Where did you hide out? And uh, what did it look like when you came out the door of your house after it passed through? Or, and especially for Americans, where were you when you heard that planes had flown into the World Trade Center towers? And I think one of the things as we look back on those days, one of the primary probably emotions we feel or remember feeling is fear. Fear. It's a scary thing, right? I I read the story in the Compass this week of a woman who, when Ivan came through, had just given birth like six days before and spent four hours in five feet of water holding her newborn son out of the water. That's fear, right? I can remember I I was a freshman in university when September 11th happened, I went to my class in the afternoon, and they said that there's this supercomputing center on campus that had been evacuated because we didn't know if the attacks were over and it could potentially be a target. I was a freshman in college. I'd never been away from home before. It's fear, right? Fear is what we experienced. And this morning, so, so fear, fear is what we feel when something precious to us is threatened. When something that we feel like our life depends on, something irreplaceable we think might be taken from us, and we're desperate to keep hold on it. And we're going to see in God's word this morning a group of people who were afraid. And they weren't afraid of natural disasters. They weren't afraid of terrorist attacks. They were afraid of Jesus. So it's, it's the Tuesday now. Our, our passage takes place on the Tuesday of the last week of the most important life in the history of the world. It's three days before Jesus is going to be hung on a cross to die. Jesus' entire life, in, in fact, the entire history of the world, has been leading up to this week, to these events. After predicting to his disciples three times that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he'll be arrested, condemned, and crucified, Jesus is here. He's in Jerusalem. He's come to the capital. And he didn't come kind of under cover of darkness, sneaking in. He came in the most public way possible. He came at the at the high tide of population in Jerusalem, right? It's Passover. Everybody is there for the festival. And Jesus comes in riding on a donkey with his disciples running ahead of him, laying down a carpet of clothing and palm branches, shouting that he is the king of Israel, right? There's nothing secret about it. Jesus wanted to be seen. He wanted the largest possible stage for what he had come to do. And the next day, Monday, as Ryan just said, he comes into the temple, to the center of Jewish life, and he overturns tables and he drives people out with a whip who had turned a place of worship into a place of profit. Jesus is he's come to do something public 
and amazing. He's, he's drawing all attention to himself. And then the next day is Tuesday. And Tuesday comes and he's back in the temple courts where he made such a scene the day before. And the Jewish leaders see him walking in the courts and they know we need to do something about this guy. And that's where our text begins. So please look at Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27, and read along with me. I'm going to read 27 through 33, and then chapter 12, verses 13 to 27. And they, Jesus and his disciples, came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now chapter 12, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we love, we love that we get to do this. We love that we get, to, we get to come together and look at your word and see Jesus. And so our prayer is and has been that you would show us Jesus, that we would see him and we would trust him and we would love him and we would walk with him, that he would change our lives. So Holy Spirit, come now and bring glory to Jesus in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So three times in this passage, Jesus is confronted by various groups. And we're going to take a look, first thing, to look, we're going to look at each one of these three confrontations, not exhaustively, but enough to see what is happening in each of these three stories. And then we're going to take a step back and ask the question, what is God showing us by putting these three stories together? Why did did he put them together this way in his word? 
So one of the first things we need to know in order to understand what's going on in this passage is who these groups are that are confronting Jesus. Because there's like a half dozen of them, right? In, in chapter 11, verse 27, we have the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And then in chapter 12, verse 13, we have some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. And then in verse 18, and Sadducees came to him. So we need, we need a little history to understand who all these people are. So Israel at this time is under the control of the Roman Empire, right? Like, like most people in the known world at the time. They were under the control of the Roman Empire, and parts of Israel, like Galilee up in the north where Jesus was from, were under the control, were, were governed through local leaders who were members of the family of a man named Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king of all of Palestine when Jesus was born. Herod the Great was the King Herod that the wise men came to and said, hey, we heard there's a king of the Jews. And he said, hey, I'd like to see that. Okay, that's that King Herod. And when he died, his kingdom was broken up among his children. And the one who took over Judea, where Jerusalem was, was so bad, so unpopular, that he was removed from power and a Roman governor was put in place. Okay, so this, this becomes important in a moment. So, so Galilee, up in the north, is under the control of Herod the Tetrarch, a son of Herod the Great. But Jerusalem is under the control of a governor named Pontius Pilate. Right, he becomes important pretty quick here. So, so the Jews didn't have a king. There was no king at the time. What they had was a council called the Sanhedrin, which was the, kind of the leading Jewish leaders. They, they would meet almost every day in the temple courts, and they were, like, they were like the legislature and the Supreme Court, kind of all rolled into one. They made decisions about religion and politics for all the Jewish people. And here's why it's important. This, this powerful council, most powerful in Jerusalem, except for the governor himself, was composed of these groups. The chief priests, who were family members of the high priest, who was appointed by the Roman governor. The scribes, who were teachers of the law. And the elders, who were these wealthy landowners, kind of aristocrats. So when we read in chapter 11, verse 27, that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, we're not, this isn't just some sort of hodgepodge of who's around. This is the the president, Congress, and the Supreme Court coming to attack one man. I mean, these are the these are the these are the high rollers coming to talk to Jesus. This three days later, this is the group that condemns Jesus to death, hands him over to Pilate, and he's crucified. It's, this is the council. And here's what they want to know from Jesus in verse twenty eight By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Who do you think you are coming into our turf, into our temple, and making this scene? We are the authority here. We are the guys who make the decisions. Unless you have like a permission slip from the governor, which you could show us, but we doubt, you have no right to be doing what you're doing. And here's how Jesus responds with a question for them. Verse 29, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? So John the Baptist was the guy who came before Jesus, the guy who got the people ready for him. And Jesus is saying, now tell me what you think about that guy. Was that guy from God? Or was he just sort of doing his own thing? And there was no love lost between John the Baptist and these people. He called them a brood of vipers. Okay, that is going to sever a relationship. And all the people would have known these guys were not fans of John. And so they couldn't say, oh, John was great. John's baptism was from heaven. They couldn't say that. But neither could they say, oh, well, John was just a troublemaker, which is what they actually thought. 
Because all the people thought that John was a prophet. So Jesus, with one question, has put the most powerful people in the nation between a rock and a hard place. And they, so they don't know what to do. They answer kind of lamely, uh, we don't know. We have no opinion on John, who's like the biggest celebrity in Israel. And, and they're embarrassed and they're ashamed. And, so, and, and, and then uh, Jesus goes on to tell a parable, which Ryan's going to preach on next week, so I won't get into it too much. But the combination of being made to look like fools in front of all these people in the temple and having this story told about them, which was not at all flattering, made them angry, so angry that they wanted to put Jesus in his place. They're going to make him look like a fool. And that leads us to the second confrontation. So now look at chapter 12, verse 13. This is what happens immediately after. And they, so we're talking about the council, these people who have just been so embarrassed by Jesus, sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. So who are the Pharisees and the Herodians? Okay, so the council, right? Just like Congress, just like Parliament, just like the Legislative Assembly was made up of parties, right? There were different people who disagreed on things and they kind of banded together to push their agenda And the most powerful people were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were like the high priests, the chief priests. They were put in power by Rome. They were pro-Rome. And then there were the Pharisees, who weren't as powerful because they didn't have, they weren't the chief priests, but they were more popular. They were like, they were the blue-collar party, right? They They were the men of the people. These were the Bible teachers in the synagogues. Everybody loved them. They were helping people understand God's law and how to live it out. So that's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Herodians, as you might guess from the name, these guys were fans of Herod. So remember I said that Herod was in power up in the north in Galilee? These were the guys that loved that guy. They wanted him to be, they wanted all the power from him. They wanted to tell him how great he was. And, and the Pharisees hated Herod. They hated that anyone not Jewish was over them. So the Pharisees and the Herodians were political enemies. They would not have had dinner parties together. But they come together to confront Jesus. They came, verse 13 says, to trap him in his talk. They want to put him in a rock and a hard place. They want, to, they want to show him to be a fool. And here's how they do it. They start by buttering him up. They say, teacher, we know that you are true. They hated this guy. We know that you are true and that you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So here's what's going on. Remember that Israel, as I said, is under direct Roman control. They have a Roman governor, Roman troops around, and part of being under Roman control is there's a tax, a tax on every person. It's a tribute to Caesar. Everybody's got to pay it. And it was no exception to the general rule that taxes are unpopular. It was really unpopular. So so much so, there'd already been a rebellion over the tax. And so here's what the Pharisees and Herodians think they've done. If, If Jesus says, yeah, you should pay the tax, then they can go to all the people and say, hey, this guy you think is such a great hero, he's for the tax. And Jesus' popularity tanks. And if Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax, everybody loves him, but then they can go to the Romans and say, this guy's starting a rebellion. You've got to take care of this. And either way, Jesus is through. That's what they think is going to happen. But Jesus knows exactly what they're doing, and once again, he turns the tables on them by asking them a question. He says, hand me a denarius. And the denarius was a Roman coin, and it was worth a lot of money. It was like the, the going wage for a day laborer. So Jesus is saying, like, anybody got a hundred? Hand me a hundred. Who's on the bill? And they say, well, it's Caesar. You know, Caesar's face is on the bill. Caesar, of course, is the emperor of everything. 
And Jesus says to them, okay, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. You don't have to choose between honoring God, honoring the government. You can do both, right? You get benefits from Caesar. Caesar provides you with protection and roads, currency to use, and so pay your due to Caesar. But God provides you with life and health and everything, and so give to God his due as well. So yeah, pay the tax, but more importantly, give your life to God. And it says in verse 17, and they marveled at him. Okay, so that's the second confrontation. Third confrontation, verse 18, and Sadducees came to him. The Sadducees, remember, were the party of the chief priests. These were the big guys. These were the people put in power by the Romans. And they were really conservative theologically, so much so that they they probably only accepted as parts of the Bible, like as from God, the first five books. They only thought, they only accepted books that were actually written by Moses. Everything else they thought was just like, was nothing. They only paid attention to the books of Moses. And they didn't accept many of the beliefs of the Pharisees. They didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in spirits, and they didn't believe in resurrection. So after, way after Moses, later books of the Old Testament, like Daniel and Isaiah, these books taught that at the end of time, everyone who had ever lived was going to rise from the dead and they're going to be judged by God. And those who were judged to be righteous would live with him forever. And the Sadducees thought that was hogwash. When you're dead, you're dead. And they knew that Jesus believed in it. They'd heard him talk about it, and so they thought, we're going to make Jesus look like an idiot. Listen to this story we're going to tell him. So they put this hypothetical scenario to him. They say, we know that, we know that the law teaches, Moses says, that if a, man's, if a man dies and he leaves his wife without children, that it's the duty of her brother-in-law to marry her and to raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, and that, and that was true. That was from God. So at the time, right, this wasn't like a welfare state. At the time, if your husband dies and you have no kids, you are in a pickle because you have no one who's providing for you right now and you have no hope for the future because there's no, there's no children who are going to grow up and then take care of you in your old age. You are in trouble. And so, and, and just as seriously for them, it was, a, it was a huge deal because then it was the end of the family line. The guy's name doesn't get passed on. His inheritance stops there. And so because of these problems, because of um, these women who, if their husband died, were kind of left on their own and not taken care of, and because in order to continue the name, continue the inheritance, God had a provision in his law that someone in the family, a brother-in-law or close relative, should marry her and raise up children, and the first son should become the heir of his dead brother. Right? This is, this is what happens if you guys have ever read the book of Ruth. There's a wonderful book of Ruth in the Old Testament, Boaz, takes Ruth, he redeems her, and takes her as his wife because he's a relative. That's the, that's the provision in the law. So they say, well, we know that this is true, so let's say, let's say there's a family of seven brothers, and one after the other, they all marry the same woman and then die, and then she dies, and there are no children. Now, now tell me what's going to happen at the resurrection. They're, they're going to all rise from the dead, and they're all going to be married to the same woman? That's ridiculous. There's no such thing as resurrection. That's what they think is going to happen. But Jesus says to them, He says this incredible thing to them. He says, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He's saying, you only read five books and you don't even know those books. You don't even know those books that you read. You don't know Moses. He says, you don't know the power of God, right? That that when people rise from the dead, they don't just like rise and kind of take up mid-stride whatever they were doing when they were dying, when they died. They rise to an entirely new kind of life. 
He says that they're like the angels in heaven. They rise to a life so full of joy and beauty and power that even the great earthly joy of marriage, they don't miss. It's an entirely different kind of life that God gives by his power. They don't know the power of God and they don't know the scriptures. He says, you don't know the books of Moses. He takes them to one of the most well-known passages in the books of Moses. The passage where God speaks to Moses out of a burning bush. He calls him to go to Egypt to pull his people out of slavery. And, and when God calls to Moses, he says to him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now these men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they'd been dead for centuries. But God said, I am still their God. They're not memories to me. Those are people that belong to me. I am their God. How can that be? It's because God is so full of life that anyone who comes to know him lives forever. They live forever with him. Jesus says in John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. Once you know God, you live forever. Not even death can end your relationship with him. As Jesus says it here, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So three times the Jewish leaders try to put Jesus in his place, and three times he gets the last word. And each of these, con- these confrontations could be its own sermon. But this morning, instead, we're going to step back and ask, what does God want us to see by having these three stories together, these three confrontations, one after another? What's God getting done in the big picture? So to get at the heart of God's message to us, we need to see three things in this passage. A fearful people, a fearless Savior, and a future without fear for us. So first, a fearful people. When we look at these three stories together, we see that it wasn't just sort of one faction of the Jewish leaders coming at Jesus. It wasn't just the Pharisees or just the Sadducees. It was everybody. These are people who deeply disagreed with each other. They were not buddies, and yet they're all united in opposing Jesus. Why? Fear. Look at chapter 11, verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Look at chapter 11, verse 32. But shall we say from men, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. Chapter 12, verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. It's because they're afraid that they want to arrest him and kill him. It's because they're afraid that they try to discredit him and make him look like a fool. What are they afraid of? They're afraid that Jesus is going to take away their influence, his in, their influence with the people. The chief priests and Sadducees, remember, these guys had incredible authority. The Roman governor made them the head of the Jewish people. They controlled the temple, the center of Jewish life. They controlled the council, the center of Jewish government. I mean, they had it made. And the scribes and Pharisees don't have that kind of power, but they have the, they have the hearts of the people. They have this incredible influence because of their teaching. And Jesus was threatening all of it. Jesus was undermining the teaching of the Pharisees, saying, don't listen to those guys. And he was coming into the temple and, and throwing everything upside down. And the crowds, these crowds, come for the Passover, were hanging on his every word. And the leaders knew if they didn't do something right away, they were going to lose everything. 
the Jewish leaders feared Jesus because he threatened what was actually most precious to them. Not God. Something else. Something vulnerable and fragile. Something they could actually lose. Their influence. Their fame. Their livelihood. Their response to Jesus was motivated by self-protection. He threatened what was most valuable to them, and they went on the defensive. These men are incredibly successful, they're incredibly religious, and they're incredibly insecure. Can you relate? Does Jesus ever make you nervous when he seems to endanger what's actually most precious to you? And he'll do that. When Jesus calls us to himself, he calls us to absolute allegiance to him. He might call you to give up a relationship. He might call you to give away your money in order to not be mastered by it. He might call you to forgo advancement at work in order to put your time into other ways of serving him. He might call you to leave your home to go spread the gospel. He might call you to go home and spread the gospel. He he could ask anything of us. So do you fear what Jesus might ask of you if you trust entirely in him? Think for a moment about this first confrontation that Jesus had with these guys, right? He asked them this question, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And did you notice they don't even, they don't even discuss what's true? They only, they only concern themselves with how their answer affects their standing with the people. And people still do that today, right? They, they hear about Jesus, they hear what he's done, what he calls us to, and they don't ask, is it true? They ask, they ask what will it cost me to believe this? Will I look like a fool? Will I have to change my lifestyle? What will my spouse think? What will my boss think? Like these leaders, they fear what Jesus will cost them. And this isn't just a problem for people kind of thinking about Christianity from the outside. This is a problem for people on the inside. These religious, these religious leaders show us it's possible to be very religious, to even be in full-time ministry, and for your real treasure not to be God, but something else a reputation for godliness, good standing in the community, a quiet conscience, obedient children, money. You can come to church and be involved in community group and serve on Sunday and still be afraid of what Jesus is going to cost you because Jesus asks for everything. So if, if religion were just something you do for God, like if Christianity were just, well, you always go to church and you always say your prayers and you give money, and you don't drink too much, and you never watch R-rated movies, and God blessed you with salvation in return, then you'd basically be his employee, right? God would be paying you for being good. And as an employee, there'd be a limit to what he could ask of you, right? He couldn't make you work nights and weekends unless it was busy season, right? He, he had to provide you with pension and benefits. There'd be, he'd, he'd be obligated to give you certain things, and, and you, he could only ask certain things of you, But the problem with that is that's not how it works. Jesus hasn't come to hire us. Jesus came to rescue us. We're dead and he brings us to life, right? We're lost and he brings us home. We're slaves and he sets us free. We contribute nothing. We contribute nothing to our salvation. Salvation isn't a wage, it's a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith, Paul says. And that's unbelievably good news because that's the only way it could ever happen. It's also frightening news because if we're saved not by what we do, but what Jesus has done, there's nothing he cannot ask of us. So the Jewish leaders are a fearful people, and so are many of us. Contrast that with what else we see in this passage. A fearless Savior. Jesus in this passage is a man 
without fear. Not only does he single-handedly disrupt the center of Jewish life, the temple, at the high point of the Jewish year, Passover, but then he comes back the next day to teach some more. Jesus, he doesn't like huddle in and hide out until the storm passes over. Jesus comes walking into the teeth of the storm. Knowing that he's becoming, he's becoming a major nuisance to the Jewish leaders, he shows up in their backyard, in the temple, to teach. They challenge his authority. He refuses to cower. He turns the question on them. They, they tempt him to say something popular, play to the people, tell them the tax is a bad idea. And he doesn't. He stays true to his course. He doesn't play to the crowd. He tells the leading priests of his people they don't know their Bibles. And he does. So while these religious leaders are they're fearfully trying to hold on to what's most precious to them, Jesus stays exactly on his course. No fear. How can he be so fearless? How can he be so fearless? Is it because Jesus knows that his life is supernaturally protected? He's got like a, a wall of angels around him and his life will never be taken? No. He knows the exact opposite. He knows that by openly confronting the Jewish leaders, he's signing his own death warrant. He knows what it's going to cost him. He's told his disciples repeatedly that what's going to happen is he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested, condemned, and handed over to crucifixion, and he's going to die. He knows it's coming. He knows that what he's doing will cost him his life, so why isn't he afraid? Because even though his life is at stake, his treasure isn't. The Jewish leaders are scrambling to protect what's most precious to them. It's always in danger. And Jesus can be fearless because what he loves most can't be lost. Because what he loves most is God. It's his life with God. He's come from God. He has authority from heaven. He lives for God. He always renders to God the things that are God's. And he's going to God. He knows that when he dies, he will still be with God because Jesus believes in the resurrection. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus knows he will rise from the dead and be with his Father forever. He has no reason to fear. And that's great for him. But what does it mean for us? We've seen a fearful people, a fearless Savior, and finally, a future without fear for us. So this passage has shown us two ways to live, right? There's a life consumed by fear of what trusting Jesus will cost us because our real treasure is always in danger. And there's a life free from fear that Jesus has because his treasure can't be taken even by death. Don't you want to be free from fear the way Jesus is? But we can't be, not, not on our own, because we haven't done what Jesus did. We haven't perfectly obeyed God. We haven't, we haven't rendered to God the things that are God's. We've been like the leaders. We've treasured things that aren't him. We've turned away from his way, and we've loved something much smaller than God, more than our life, more than God. And as much as we try to change on our own, these idols have a gravitational pull. We do better for a little while, but we always go back. They pull us back. So how can we, how can we move from one life to the other? What's powerful enough to change our treasure from little things in this life to God himself? Not doing more religious activities, not, not going to church every week, not praying every morning, not even becoming a pastor can change your heart. These men were incredibly religious, and they were still full of fear. We don't change by doing more. We change by seeing what Jesus has done. Jesus said in Mark 10, verse 45, which we saw beginning of the summer, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Jesus expected to give his life, and this was why. He came to die as a ransom. Jesus knew that all of us have built our lives around something other than God, built our lives around an idol. He knows that we have cut ourselves off from the source of life. We have turned from God, cut ourselves off, and like flowers in a vase, we are slowly dying. And Jesus has come into the world for those who are dying, for those who are slaves, for those who can't change their hearts. As a ransom, he's come to give his life as a payment to set us free. Set us free from slavery, set us free from death. He'll take death so we can have life. He'll take our punishment so we can walk. That's why he came. This is why he went toe-to-toe with the religious leaders who have the power to arrest him and to kill him. He was fighting for us. He was fighting for us. Jesus was showing us that mere religion, just studying the Bible and going to church, serving as a leader, as good as those things can be, they, they can't actually free you from fear. These Jewish leaders were still consumed with fear. The only thing that can drive out fear is love. When we know that Jesus loved us so much that he came from heaven to take the death we deserved so we could have the life with God he deserved, when we know that he loved us to death, our, char- our hearts will change. Our treasure will change. Other treasures will look so small in comparison. How can, how can money or sex, or popularity compared to being loved like this by God. I read, I read an interview this week with an author who said that, that loving these little things, loving these little idols in the world, is like taking a doll and putting makeup on the doll and treating the doll like a spouse and expecting it to love you in return. When the real person is in the next room waiting to love you fully. And, you know, a doll, it's a fine toy. It can make you happy for a little while. But once you've had the real thing, once you've been loved by a person, you could never go back to the imitation. Nothing in this world can compare with the love God has shown us through Jesus. Because Jesus died for us, we don't need to fear God's punishment. Because Jesus rose from us, we can be sure that death isn't the end for us either. That when we die, we will go to be with God, and one day we will all rise. He is not the God of the dead but of the living. When we deeply know God's love, God will become our treasure. And when God is your treasure, you can can face even death knowing that nothing can ever separate you from the love of God that's in Christ. The world can't touch you. Like Jesus, you can face the future without fear. So here's the message of this passage for us this morning. We can be free from fear of Jesus when we trust in what Jesus has fearlessly done for us. So what are you afraid of losing if you trust and obey Jesus? The respect of your family? Your hope of getting married someday? The ability to spend all your time and your money on yourself? Nights on the couch in front of the TV? Is any of those things worth your eternal life with God? Jesus wants us to pull the camera back this morning to see the big picture. This life is full of little treasures that compete with God. And many of them make us feel really good, right? The Pharisees liked being Pharisees. But none of these little treasures eternally satisfies. And all of them leave us fearful when they're in danger. But there is a treasure that eternally satisfies. That once you have it, can never be lost. A treasure that you you don't need to work for or purchase or earn. It's already been paid in full. The treasure is eternal life with God through Jesus, and it comes to everyone who trusts in Jesus, that Jesus came from heaven 
to die and rise and bring us to God. The Bible says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And if you trust in him, you will belong to God forever. So you have a choice this morning. Don't set your love on little things. Don't put your trust in something that can be taken away. Look again at Jesus. See who he is. See what he has done. See what he offers and put your trust in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus. Please let us never get tired of thanking you for Jesus. God, we could never come to you except through him. And he has done everything through living a perfect life, through dying, through rising. God, you have accepted him as payment for our sins. And we can come to you by faith, by calling upon your name, by trusting in you. And that will change our hearts. And so, God, please do come this morning. Help us to see Jesus and trust in him. And help us to make you our treasure. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.